0: If you have your Bible, turn with me to Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 5, the text for the Bethlehem candle, of course, mentions Bethlehem fairly prominently, and you might wonder, well, do we overplay? Bethlehem as a geographical location a little much. And the the answer of Micah is pretty clearly no we don't. Uh, The text that was read from John 7, uh, I had that read because it reminds us that the Jewish community in the first century, was very keyed in on taking Micah's words quite literally. But interestingly enough, the Jewish community post-Christ, have one commentary that I use uh, regularly uh, and used it for for this, so the author of that commentary on Micah uh, tried to make much of the fact that you know, Micah wasn't really saying that the Messiah would literally be born in Bethlehem, but merely pointing out that he would be in the line of David, who was born in Bethlehem. Well, of course, that's a convenient thing to say because it's a little embarrassing for Christians to be saying that their Messiah was literally born in Bethlehem, which from the perspective of John's gospel was clearly how the Jewish community thought of it in the first century. They took it as an objection to the fact that Jesus could be Messiah because to the best of their knowledge, he was not only raised in Nazareth, but they assumed he was born in Nazareth. Well, they were wrong. He had actually been born in in Bethlehem. And so putting those two uh, texts together, um, it is seen as having redemptive historical significance that Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea. So let me reread the passage one more time. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, we pray that you would hear us as we come before you as those who have been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, attend to my cry, Give ear to my prayer from lips that are free of deceit. From your presence, let us be vindicated in the world as your people. For you have tried our hearts and you have visited us in the night and you have tested us. And you have found nothing against us, for we are in Christ. And we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. We call upon you, O Lord, and ask that you would answer us in our various trials and troubles, of which we have many. You assure us that you care for your people and will keep us as you watch over the apple of your own eye. Hide us, O Lord, in the shadow of your wings that we might be protected from the wicked who are all around. Lord, in this Advent season, may you enable us to focus on the depth of the grace that you have shown us. Draw us to yourself, enable us to hear your voice, understand your ways, and walk in them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The little phrase, out of the blue, or from out of nowhere made me think of a refer in just a moment to the fact that uh, when I was a kid, we moved in January of 1967 from Rockford, Illinois, 50 miles closer to Chicago, which moved us within the WGN viewing area. And in the 1960s, um, all home Chicago Cubs games were played during the daytime. And every single one of them was televised. And so when you moved closer to Chicago, at least at our school, um, right after school, during April and May, Cubs were always on. Um, If the game went long, they might still be on when you got off the school bus, when you got home. And so it had a tendency uh, to make fairly dutiful fans out of uh, particularly young boys who played Little League baseball and that kind of thing. And so by... 1969, I thought they were really, really something. And in 1969, they got off to the greatest start in the history of the franchise. They just won and won and won. And so that by the month of June, the discussion amongst us as young fans was how many games it would take us to win the World Series. You know, we didn't think four, we weren't overly confident, but five or six, probably not seven. But if you know your baseball history, you know that a strange thing began to happen as July turned into August. The Cubs began to lose and lose and lose in what had been the historically by far the worst team in their division. The New York Mets began to win and win and win. And people started referring to them like rubbing salt in your wounds as the amazing Mets, the amazing Mets. And that's how it ended. Mets won the pennant. Mets went on to beat a very good Baltimore Orioles team and win the World Series. It was humiliating. I'm still talking it through with people. Uh, It's kind of part of a recovery program. Um, um. But I mention it in conjunction with our text this morning, because the Mets, from our perspective, just really did seem to come out of the blue from nowhere. This team that no one was talking about in May, June, are suddenly the team that everyone was talking about. And that's how it went. Well, roughly speaking, that's the story of how Bethlehem comes on to the stage. It's a nowhere place in the days of Samuel. And it suddenly comes onto the stage in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we'll just cherry-pick a couple of places. You can read the whole text about the call of the anointing of David, but here's how the chapter opens. The Lord said to Samuel, how long you're going to grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king of Israel? Fill your horn of oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Now, as we move forward, it becomes very, very evident that Samuel knows all but nothing about either Bethlehem or the family of Jesse. Right down to the fact, the text makes very evident, he had no idea how many children Jesse actually had. Um, So he had no acquaintance much with Jesse's family and probably little to no acquaintance with the place for it is a relatively insignificant place and when he comes you remember in first samuel 16:5 they're not happy to see him because they know that he and Saul are a little at odds And so to have an enemy of the king come and visit your town was not considered safe. And they didn't even know how ominous this trip really was, that Samuel was coming there to anoint Saul's replacement. But here's how the text reads in verse 5. And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Uh, He consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, Jesse knew perfectly well that he had eight sons and not seven, but he only brought seven of them to be consecrated. And apparently, um, very apparently, didn't tell Samuel uh, anything about it. You remember, Samuel uh, turns out to be a lousy scout uh, for kings. Um, All of the guys that he thinks look promising, the Lord rejects. And so Samuel slowly works his way through the seven consecrated sons. Verse 10, here's how it goes. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse... Are all your sons here? Are all your sons here? And it almost reads a little bit like even Jesse. Oh, yeah. There's David. The youngest. I didn't think you could possibly be interested in him. He's out shepherding. In the field. That's what he says. Verse 11 and 12. And there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Matthew said, uh, and Samuel said to Jesse, "Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes." And he sent, and he brought him in, and now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, "Anoint him, for this is he." And now out of the blue, Bethlehem's on the, on the map. It's the town that Israel's most famous king was born in. Now I've died, they did what we do, right? You drive west on the interstate and you go by Murdo and then you're reminded that Senator Thune was born there. I don't know whether Bethlehem ever put a little sign up at the edge of town. You come through, King David was born here. But people knew it. A couple centuries looking back, Micah is deeply aware of it. And he comments on it. um, In his prophetic word. I state our thesis for this morning this way. The story of Christmas is the story of the out of the blue ground of our peace with God. Out of the blue, the ground for our peace with God. Um, And it comes from this obscure geographical location. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient and days. So this Micah text is the story of great things coming from small things. That's what this verse means to set up. The great Messiah will come out of this nowhere place. And David was born in a nowhere place. And later, Jesus will be born in the same nowhere place that David had been. I mentioned our our move to uh, closer to Chicago in 1967. Our mailing address. Was in a little town two miles to the east of our house. We were on an acreage, Ringwood, Illinois. Ringwood, Illinois. Um, the town was every bit as dismal as its name. There almost was nothing there, which is something for an Illinois town. Uh, no gas station. It's a Methodist church and a uh, Lutheran church and like a fourth-rate little store next to the post office and and that was it Uh, there's a morton chemical plant that sat literally across the street from the store and half the day would admit a smell that you almost couldn't stand ringwood illinois would have been worse, of course, if they called it Ringworm, Illinois. Um, uh, but they didn't. It was it was Ringwood, Ringwood, Illinois. Very, very much a nowhere place. And that's the that's the twist, you see, that Micah wants to give us in our thoughts about Bethlehem. That's the point in verse two. Oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. That is, this is a really insignificant place. It's a really insignificant place. No one would have bragged about being from there. But one shall come forth from you who will be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth will be from the ancient of days one will come forth from you and that one will be the one ruling in Israel and he'll come forth from of old from ancient days from ancient days now notice the the uh, the language here, from you shall come forth one who is ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, the ancient of days. When it says he's going to be the ruler of Israel, you know, technically speaking, Jesus never really was the ruler of the nation of Israel within his lifetime. Not even close. He never had any political power at all. Well, that's because Mike is not really talking about Israel in the sense of a political entity but he will be the ruler of the people of God that is Israel and as we'll see in a few moments as we gather some of the um, uh, those things uh, up together we um, this people turns out to be spread far and wide all over the place, and we ourselves are considered among them, uh, right? This is, this is the point in uh, some of the language in the New Testament. Now, some folks get very nervous about this. Oh, okay, no, no, you're not, don't. you shouldn't be talking about the church as a replacement of Israel. Well, I'm not talking about the church as a replacement for Israel. That would be absurd, Because the church exists from within Israel. The church are and is the people of Israel's Messiah, the Christ. And so when Paul's talking about us as Gentiles, how does he describe us? More than 70 times in his letters. In Christ, which is code language for in the Messiah. Whose Messiah? Israel's Messiah. Israel's Messiah. The people of God are the people of Israel's Messiah. So that this one that comes forth, comes forth in ruling Israel to rule the worldwide people of God that now come to be considered genuine Israel. And by genuine Israel, we simply mean the people of the Messiah. Book of Revelation chapter 14 and verse four, here's how the people of God are described. It's a striking phrase, one of my favorite little phrases in all the book of Revelation actually. It is those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and for the lamb. That ought to be us. What ought to characterize us as Christian people is this. We are the people who follow the lamb wherever he goes. We are the people of whom it could be said, the words of the Lamb shape them from every angle that he spoke to. But I love the way he puts it there. Those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And then he tells us this. He was from of old, this person. From ancient days. Now, the birth of David's already a couple centuries in the past, and so Micah may be somewhat referencing the fact that Bethlehem's been prominent now for a couple hundred years since the birth of David, and the prominence of David, who is still known by Micah's days as Israel's greatest king, no question about it, most prominent in the literature, most prominent in the Psalms, most prominent in every conceivable way. And this is clearly the connection, too, that is there as Matthew opens the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David. Linking Christ, David, Bethlehem, all back together. Matthew chapter 2. He makes explicit reference to this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came forth from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and when he came, we came to worship him, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and the assembly of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. See, Herod was not much of a Bible student. wasn't always picking up the prophet Micah, apparently. So they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and then they quote Micah 5. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel from long ago, the days of David. But Jesus takes this kind of language much, much more grandly. Remember how Jesus can speak of himself and where he came from in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you from before the world existed. One will come forth from you from of old. True enough, through the line of David, but ultimately, ultimately, from the everlasting designs and plan of God himself where Jesus existed with his father before the world was and he comes forth as this as this babe in Bethlehem and that's what's going on in advent season that's what we're marking secondly This is the story of a great birth of incalculable significance. Verse 3 and 4. This is the story of a great birth of incalculable significance. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor will give birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to his people. Now the she there probably doesn't refer primarily to the Virgin Mary, but she as Israel personified. However, it's, uh, it's arguable that Micah, though he knew nothing about the Virgin Mary, may have had in the back of his mind also the she mentioned by Isaiah, the prophet, a contemporary of his, Isaiah 714, where the young woman brings forth the son and his name will be called Emmanuel. But primarily, most of the scholars are all in agreement. The idea is it is from Israel that Messiah will come. And when she, Israel, gives birth to the Messiah, then he'll gather brothers from all around the earth. So this first thing that's significant about the birth is it brings about the great hope of the Old Testament people, namely, return from exile. Return from exile. Right at this time when Micah is writing, the northern ten kingdoms have just went into exile. They never really come back. When the Babylonians rise, Judah goes into exile. And they never really come back either. And so that by the time of the Christ, no one has really returned from exile. And the hope is that when Messiah comes, then this will be fulfilled and the people will return from exile. But as it turns out in New Testament perspective, the return from exile is much broader than merely the Northern and the Southern kingdom. The return from exile is all those people exiled from God, sent east of Eden in the beginning, out of God's presence, out of God's favor. And the rest of the redemptive historical story is how they are to be brought back. And here it is. Now, from all around the world... People are returning from exile. Not so much they're going back to a geographical location, they're going back to God. They're repenting. They are repenting. He uses the verb, central verb for repentance and change in the Old Testament, shuv, and they shall turn or they shall return and become part of the sons of Israel in Christ Abraham's offspring that's you that's me Jesus our messiah our our savior so the return from exile second thing significant about messiah is he stands uh Literally, the Hebrew in verse 3 just reads like this. And he shall stand and he shall shepherd by the strength of Yahweh. And he shall stand. It's distributive, so you take the, the last little phrase with both pieces. He shall stand by the strength of Yahweh and he shall shepherd by the strength of Yahweh. But the two things he does is he stands and he shepherds. He stands and he shepherds. Uh, that standing language is, uh, is very, very significant um, language. Um, ontologically speaking, it's just what God does. In other words, the idea of standing is you stand independent, sovereign, dependent on no one, dependent on nothing. Now here the idea is definitely more what we refer to as the economic trinity. That is. Jesus stands. You couldn't possibly topple him over because he's dependent upon the Father. But all the people are going to come back from all around the world uh, because New Testament opens, genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, son of Abraham, and Abraham's offspring are going to reach to all the tribes of the earth, all the tribes of the earth. Carl Henry, in writing about the theological term stand, wrote this. The self-disclosed God, this one who stands, exists forever forever. And self specified and conditioned free of any external determination. His reality, purpose, and activity are not contingent on the universe. He continues steadfast, unimpaired, immutable. Not only he stands, but also his word. He remains, and his truth as well holds good and abides valid. This same image shows up, and we looked at it last week in Sunday school class, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. Between the throne and the foreign living creatures and among the elders, I saw the Lamb standing, standing as though he had been slain. The language of though he's been slain emphasizes the crucifixion and redemptive work of Jesus. The word standing emphasizes his resurrection and ascension. So there he is standing at the right hand of God. And Micah said, the Messiah will stand. He will stand by the power of God. And he will shepherd By the power of God. By the power of God through the Word of God, primarily, right? So, Jesus in the Good Shepherd section of John's Gospel, John 10, 27, and 28, here's how Jesus shepherds us. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and it's by hearing his voice that we follow the Lamb wherever he goes. My sheep. Hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I will give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall ever snatch them out of my hand. Now that little phrase, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. You notice how close that is to exactly what Micah goes on to say in verse four? And he shall stand and shepherd his flock by the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. No one will snatch them out of my hand. They shall dwell secure. Two ways of saying exactly the same thing. So, this Advent season, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, where does that put you? Eternal life. Dwelling secure. Member of God's family. Member of God's people. Well, that's worth singing about. That's, uh, that's a very, very merry thought, isn't it? There we are. We're, we're standing. Um, we have many merry promises, many merry hopes, many merry assurances for a very merry Christmas if this is who we are. Third and finally, this is a story of peace with God. Verse 5, the first little phrase, and he shall be their peace. Again, the Hebrew is sparser than that. It just says, and this one shall be peace. And this one shall be peace. That is, this one shall be the ground of peace. Now, this doesn't mean that when we hear about Jesus, then our hearts are softened about God and we and we come maybe to come to God and be at peace with him from our side. That's not what this is talking about at all. This has exactly the other angle on it. Uh, problem is, not that we are not having peaceful feelings about God, our problem is that God doesn't have peaceful feelings about us because of sin. And we are in deep, deep trouble. And God himself took care of that trouble in the Messiah. It's the only hope you have in the world is Jesus Christ, because he's the only ground for putting any human being back in a peaceful standing before God. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of the cross. That's the story of the Messiah. Our favorite verse in the Gospel of John is precisely designed to make that point. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Gave him to be what? The ground of our peace with him. That whoever believes in him will not perish and have everlasting life. Because by believing in him, you tap in to the ground of peace that he's created. And apart from that, Apart from that, there's absolutely no hope in the world. And this one is our peace. So thinking theologically, you know, if, I don't know if you set up a little manger set up in your house anywhere or not. You look at the little cradle there and you could just point to it and say, and this one has come to be the ground of our peace. That's the story of the gospel in a nutshell. That's the ground of our salvation. That's the ground that Paul was referring to in Romans 5, verse 1, as he opens that famous chapter. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How do we have it? Not through our changed lives. Not through the stunning insight of our faith. Not through anything like that. He tells us having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This one, Micah says, this one is our peace. I hope this Advent season, he's your peace. That's where you look to. That's why you have confidence even in the face of death because you know that you could point to your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and say, this one, this one is peace. This one is peace. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, open our eyes to see the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, may we see it plainly. May we love him deeply. May we be struck in a fresh way by the wonder and the depth, the personal nature, the beauty of your salvation that has been laid out before us in and through the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we make this plea. Amen.